0: And uh, um, I was glad to, to be asked to do that. Uh, however, he has, has given me the opportunity to teach on, on marriage from Ephesians chapter five. Now, uh, that might not seem um, that uh, that difficult, uh, or or whatever. Um, it, we're teaching the scripture, um, but I want you to know today that I do not speak this morning from any sort of position of marital authority. Okay, um, I'm doing that for two reasons. The first reason is uh, because some of you have been married longer than I've been alive, right? And so it would be easy for you to um, discount or scoff at any instruction given by such a young man, right? That's the first one. The second reason is some of you know me. And therefore, I'm not an authority on marriage, right? So today, this morning, uh, better, a better position for me to come to you with is this. As one has said, I am a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread. Okay? So this is not, I'm the best husband in the world, clearly, right? This is not, I know everything there is to know about Um, what it means to be a husband or a wife, for that matter. It's not. Um, One myth about pastoring is that somehow we have all all the answers to to problems. That's clearly not true, right? And so this morning, truly, we come together as fellow travelers uh, looking to the book, the book, for answers, for direction. So I don't speak today on any sense of marital authority, but I speak from the one sole source of authority upon which we stand for all of life, all of practice, all of marriage, for a husband, for a wife, for any of us. It is the scriptures. And so today we lean into the scriptures. We we put our ear up to, to the word of God and ask God to speak and for us to listen. And so before we get started, would you do that? Would you lean in to the Lord this morning and ask him to speak to you. God, we're asking for that. Uh, no one here is an authority. Every marriage is different. Every man is different. Every every wife is different. Every, every Everyone is different. So there, there's some common things, yes, but Father, marriage isn't easy and we know that. And yet, Father, we want to learn today. We want to hear from your word today. And help us to listen. Help us to listen. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, We live in a day where some would say that the institution of marriage is being attacked. And I think we would agree with that. But it might even be more than that. Not only is the marriage union being attacked, it's being dismantled. Um, it's not just a threat. It's, it's actually, it's actually happening. That what God has has said is not believed by a culture. And although the the, the statistics. Uh, some of you may have heard statistics about marriages. And at one point in time, there was a statistic running around that there was 50% of marriages ending in divorce. That statistic has been known now to be to be a faulty, uh, a faulty statistic, to be inaccurate, as well as uh, the divorce rate among Christians being equal to those people outside of Christianity. That's not factual either. However, we do know um, that it's a real deal, isn't it? We do know that the divorces are real. We do know that that marriages are in trouble. Yet, across the board, um, marriages and divorces are in decline. Actually, since 1980 was the peak of both. And so, whereas they they may not be as high as they've ever been, um, it doesn't mean they're not happening either. It doesn't mean that we don't need to speak into this as well. The divinely ordained union is in many ways in our culture, being profaned, right? It's being profaned through, through abuse, through unfaithfulness, through immorality, through divorce, through cohabitation, through what John Piper calls so-called same-sex marriage, and maybe we could list more and more things. George Barnard did some research, and what button do I, oh, there. I've not used this before. Forgive me. George Varna did some research, and he found this, that marriage, when asked the question about marriage being a covenant before God and a man and a woman, I would just cite the, the lowest statistic there if you can see it. 42% of millennials actually believe that, see marriage as a covenant. We're going to talk about that in just a minute, but that statistic is not good. You can see it falling. Generation after generation, it's falling. So what's, what's the trajectory of that, right? We can see it, and it's not going in the right direction. George Barna also found that 12 times as many practicing Christians than those with no faith hold to a traditional view of marriage. So, so that, that's, that's good. That's a good thing. And yet, um, there was a time, wasn't there, when culture in general believed in a traditional marriage, whether or not you were practicing Christian or not. So, with all this, there may be, ju- just maybe, a need for us to get away from the, the culturally progressive, the amoral, the populist thought of marriage and return to a biblically-based, scripturally-rooted instruction on marriage and for marriage. We know marriage is not man's idea. It's not not a Western civilization idea. It's not even the church's idea. Marriage actually is God's idea. It's his design and it's his definition. Just a few moments ago, we read from Ephesians chapter 5. And we read verse 32. And in verse 32, the Apostle Paul says this. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ." and the church. What is the mystery? The mystery is Christ and the church. That's what this is about. That's what marriage is about. Marriage is created to illustrate the union between Christ and the church. That's what marriage is actually supposed to do. If you're married, that's what your marriage is supposed to do. It's actually supposed to illustrate Christ and the church. But we might ask ourselves, how how would that happen? <laughs> how would that actually work? Because we know that not all marriages actually do that, obviously. So how can, how can our marriage, how can your marriage, how can mine actually do that? Well, maybe there's five ways. Maybe someone could come up with many, many more. But we'll look at five this morning of ways that marriage illustrates Christ in the church. And the first one is that marriage is biblically, has biblically defined roles biblically defined roles for husbands and wives. These roles are meant to display a picture, and the picture, as we know, is Christ and the church. They're not defined by a cultural context so as to make them archaic and unnecessary for today or irrelevant. They're not out of date. They're actually for our good, actually for the good of the the union, and they are ultimately, again, for God's glory. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul first addresses the wives, and he gives them a word in verses 22, 24, and then 33. We'll read the first two of those verses. It says this, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. John Pope Piper wrote a book called um, This Momentary Marriage. If you've not read it, uh, we had copies out there. Um, They were all purchased. But you can actually go on to desiringgod.com or .org, .org probably, and um, you can actually read it um, online for free or download it to a a device, a PDF or or whatever. And in that book, he he takes on what submission means and what it does not mean, which is, is hugely important. Uh, we live in a culture where submission is is a is a uh, is a it's not a four letter word, but it's 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 about a four letter word, right? That that this idea of submission is is so um, uh, unhelpful to our culture. It seems demeaning, and yet um, it's not meant to be that at all. John Piper cites six things that submission is not. In the first one, he says that submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. Submission does not mean leaving your brain and your will at the wedding altar. It does not mean avoiding every effort to change a husband. It does not mean putting um, the, the will of the husband before the will of Christ. It does not mean that the wife gets her personal spiritual strength primarily through her husband. And it does not mean that the wife is to act out of fear. That's what it does not mean. Well what does it mean? And he gives this definition. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and to carry it out through carry it out according to her gifts. Submission is a divine calling. Here's the good news that the God didn't come up with some crazy idea and wives got the short end of the stick here. Actually, this is designed by God. It has purpose and reason. It's a divine calling of God on the life of a wife, is to honor and affirm her husband's leadership. Her husband's leadership. You'll notice in the text that when it calls the, the, the wife to submit... It calls her to submit to who? Her own husbands. What does that mean? That means the the wives are not necessarily having to submit to every man in in the world. They submit to their own husbands. How? As to the Lord. As they submit to the Lord. Why? Because God has so designed the union to include this role of of a wife. And we'll talk about the role of a husband in just a moment in the end, wives are willfully and humbly submitting to God's design. That's what they're doing. It's a position of humility. Yes, it is. It is that, and it's God's design for the wife. The church, the church's model of respect and submission to Christ, as in Christ and the church, that's where the wives find the model to obey. Paul then turns to husbands, and he gives a word to the husbands. And in verse 23, we say, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Again, John Piper gives this helpful definition of headship when he says this, headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. Again, a divine calling. God has so set up the union to to have a leader, to have the head. As Christ is the head of the church, the husband is the head of the wife. Now, now some of you might might think that that sounds sounds really good. Why why does the husband get to be the head? As if this is a power position as if this is a power grab if more husbands actually understood what that is no one would be grabbing for the power the weight is immense it's divine and if any husband were to use that power for selfishness he doesn't understand that power he doesn't understand the position because it actually isn't about power it's not about power at all Read the rest of the verses. Even as Christ is the head of the church, verse 25. And husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. Doesn't sound like a power move to me. And what? And gave himself up for her. It's not a power move. That's giving, that's sacrifice. How does a husband lead in this way, even as Christ did? He's the reference point. He's the model. He's the example of this love. What kind of love? It's the agape love. Many of you know that word. That's the idea of this being an unconditional love, a self-sacrificial love. It's a giving kind of love. That's the love that Jesus had for his people, the love that a husband has for his wife. Now, whereas both of these roles are specific to the wife and the husband, those are absolutely accurate, we also understand that there is mutual submission that exists. If you look in your Bible, just one verse previous to this section, in chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says these words, "...submitting to one another out of reverence... For Christ. There is an element where we submit to one another. We we care for the, the best interests of one another. So, husbands would do that for a wife. They'd be willing to submit, in a sense, their will for her. So, again, we're taking the power grab completely out of this definition. And, wives, we haven't said anything about loving. you to love your husbands, but in the beginning of chapter 5, we find these words, to all Christians, therefore be imitators of God, verse 1, as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So the call to love and to submit really goes to all of us. Specifically in the marriage, yes, there are defined roles, and they are biblically defined roles, and they're Defined on purpose. When we start operating outside of our defined roles, that's when we have problems. It's as old as the garden. It happens time and time again. One of the ways that we illustrate Christ in the church, the mystery of marriage, is by fulfilling our biblically designed roles within Secondly, we find that there is an ultimate purpose. There's an ultimate purpose for marriage. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blame. Now, this is in reference to, to the wife. And you'll hear words like sanctify, and cleanse, and wash, and without spot, and without wrinkle, and holy, and without blemish. And it's true that it's directed at the wife, but the overall point here, the overall message is actually an overall message for all of us, and it is what marriage is about, ultimately is about our holiness. Author Gary Thomas has said this, your marriage is more Than a sacred covenant with with another person. It is a spiritual discipline designed to help you know God better, trust Him more fully, and love Him more deeply. If God's primary intent for your marriage isn't to make you happy, what if God's primary intent for your marriage isn't to make you happy but holy? What then? What then if that were true? And it certainly is true. We look at throughout the pages of Scripture, and God's plan always is about our holiness. Why wouldn't marriage be about that? All of life is about that. God's constantly wanting us to become more and more like Jesus. Now, it's true that marriage is not, not easy. For some of us, before we got married, we never knew we were wrong. Right? You, you never, you never, no one ever told you you were wrong until you got married. Then all of a sudden you find out that you're wrong a lot, aren't you? Right? What's that do? What's that do to us? Some of us, it, it makes us dig in a little bit. I'm not wrong that much. Or we actually eat a little bit of, of humble pie. And we recognize that maybe I'm not as good as I think I am. Maybe I'm not as right as I think I am. Maybe I'm actually being made more like Jesus by my spouse. Imagine that. Imagine that God has has placed you in a relationship to help you grow to know Him better. Imagine that. You don't have to imagine it. That's exactly what He is doing. Marriage is for our good, our sanctification, our holiness, becoming more like Jesus, and again, ultimately, His glory. Thirdly, we need to move. Covenantal faithfulness. By that, we mean, in part, unity. Unity. In verses 29 through 31, it says this, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There's unity here. There's unity in marriage. How is there unity? Well, here's an illustration. How is there unity in the Godhead? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, right? Three persons who are equal, three persons who are distinct, yet unified. Marriage, two people, separate, but equal, one flesh. Andreas Kostenberger, in his book, God, Marriage, and Family, writes about the different views of marriage. And he cites three of them, and he cites them as these three ideas. Sacramental, contractual, and covenantal. And by those he means this. This comes from, from his book. The, the sacramental view sees marriage as a means of grace. This comes from church law and church tradition. The model is rooted in the the writings of Augustine, Augustine, excuse me, uh, trying to communicate a quote holy and permanent bond between a man and a woman which depicts christ's union with the church that's the intent however this idea has been developed into a what kostenberger calls a full-fledged sacramental theology by the catholic church this theology purports that marriage is a a right a church right or um, a church right from which we we get grace it's, it's merit-based. I can get something from God through this sacrament of marriage. However, biblically, this theology is, is wanting at best. It's deficient. The scriptures nowhere teach that there is a bestowing of grace through marriage vows. It's completely unbiblical. The second view is a contractual view. Kostenberger says this, that that the contractual view sees marriage as a bilateral contract that is voluntarily formed, maintained, and dissolved by two individuals. This is civil law. This is what what the world would would commonly think of as marriage. It's a a contract. We agree to something, and then when we're done with it, we agree to be done with it. It it, it is contractual. He, He cites five characteristics of contracts. This is from actually another book um, by Jerry Chap- Gary Chapman. And here are the five. They are typically made for a limited period of time. They are most often to deal with specific actions. They are conditional upon the continued performance of contractual obligations by the other partner. They are entered into for one's own benefits and they are sometimes unspoken and implicit. That's what a contract is. Normally, or or often, often is. And again, this is a prevailing secular view of marriage. And yet, there's a third view, and it would be called a covenant view or a covenantal view. And this sees marriage as a sacred bond between a man and a woman, instituted and entered into before God. This means that there's a, there's a divine law in play in covenantal view of marriage. He writes, A sacred bond between a man and a woman instituted by and publicly entered into before God. Whether or not this is acknowledged by the married couple, normally consummated by sexual intercourse. And nearly 42%, we gave the statistic earlier, of millennials say they hold to that view. That view that, that, that God himself writes on multiple occasions in the scriptures. Genesis 2.24 We just read the quotation of that in Ephesians 5, but in Genesis 2 24, leaving father and mother, holding fast to his wife, the two become one. That's a covenant. It's a covenant. If you've entered into a marriage in the sight of God, that's a covenant marriage. It's a covenant. You're not making it just between you and someone else, that you and someone else get to decide when it ends. You're making it before the Lord. In the sight of God, it's divinely instituted and publicly entered into. The last two points are not necessarily verses uh, from this text, but are more themes, if you will, than chapter and verse. And the fourth way which marriage illustrates Christ in the church is the idea of being Christ-centered. Marriages are Christ-centered. Center, and marriages that are Christ-centered, I should say, illustrate Christ in the church. We said this earlier, that, that not every marriage does illustrate Christ in the church. We, we know that. We know that that's, that's obviously true. Um, but also, not even every Christian who is involved in marriage illustrates Christ in the church. Not every Christian that's married to another Christian is actually in a Christian marriage. Do you know that? Just because you are Christians does not mean that your marriage is a Christian marriage. What, what, what do I mean by that? Well, let me ask you this question. What makes something Christian? What makes something Christian? Well, it would be the same question as what makes anything Christian? Right? What, 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 makes a, 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 what makes music Christian? What makes a movie Christian? What makes a book Christian? What makes a a sermon Christian? You know there are Christian people who preach sermons that are not Christian sermons? Do you know that? Do you know there are churches that are Christian churches in name, but they're actually not? What what am I saying? How how can those things be true? What, What is the defining element that makes something Christian? It's not hard, is it? It's Christ. You you can preach the Bible and never preach Christ. That's not a Christian message. There are people who who preach the Bible for, for morals or for good stories to tell our kids or manipulate actions. That's not a Christian message. If the message does not include Jesus, it is not Christian. And so if a marriage is not centered on Jesus and his work, it is not Christian true the way we illustrate christ in the church is by having a marriage centered on jesus that's what marriage is ultimately about your marriage any marriage does exist to point people to jesus marriages can do it they can do it by centering their relationship on jesus And what does that mean? What does it mean to be centered on Jesus? That sounds maybe obvious to some, or maybe some of us would say, I'm Christ-centered, cross-driven, I'm a, whatever words you want to use, but how how does my life look if I'm actually centered on Jesus? What I mean is this, is that your life is built around him. That literally, he's the center. Your life revolves around him. You know, your life can revolve about many other things. One writer would call those functional centers. Idols. Idols that, that, that take over our life, and our life is, is oriented around those things. It's idolatry. And some marriages can, be, can move into idolatry. Idolatry. Where it's centered around the wife, or it's centered around the husband, or it's centered around finances, or it's centered around the kids. That's not Christ centered. That's an idolatrous marriage. To be Christ centered is that your life and your relationship revolves around Jesus. It means He determines and defines the marriage, it means He determines and defines your choices and your goals. A Christ-centered marriage is radically changed by what it pursues, how it measures success. You see, left to our own, left to our own, our, our functional center for, for most of us is ourselves. I want marriage to be about me. I want my needs to be filled. I want to be pleased. I want things to work out the way I want them to. Friend, that is not a Christ-centered marriage. It's a self-centered marriage. One writer says this, Our sin supplants sacrifice with selfishness in our marriages. If we want to experience marriage as God created it to be, a reflection of his sacrificial love and leadership of the church, we have got to keep him at the center of our marriages. Your spouse isn't your savior, Jesus is. Live that truth and your marriage will, will likely, will more likely thrive. Fourthly, we'll move quickly through this. Grace-based. Grace-based. What does it mean to have a grace-based marriage? I'm using grace-based as as in reference to, versus, merit-based. Where a husband does what he does if the wife does what she does. If you do you what you're supposed to do, I'll do what I'm supposed to do. If you don't, I won't. That's not grace, that's merit. That's giving. It's not giving, it's earning. In his book, Love and Respect, some of you may have heard of that book There's an illustration that the writer gives And he, he refers to it as the crazy cycle And he says this That, that if, if the husband does not get the love Or the, the respect he thinks he deserves From his wife Then he will not give her the love that she deserves And if she does not get the love that she deserves She will not give him the respect that he deserves you can tell how this cycle will continue, right? It'll keep going. And the writer says that the, the, one of the, the cures to break that is, he who is most mature moves first, right? Which is, is a good little jab at, at both parties, right? But what is missing in, in, in that cycle? Well, what is the missing component that both the husband and the wife are totally not in tune with? It's grace, it's saying that, that I will love you not because you deserve it, not because you respect me. As to the Lord, as Christ loved, not as my wife respects me, I love her. Wife, n- not because your, your husband loves you, because you're called to it. The grace is completely missing. It's not there. A grace based marriage, a grace fueled marriage, understands confession and repentance and forgiveness. Grace gives. Grace serves. Grace forgives. Grace believes. Grace believes the best. One bit of advice that we have tried to follow in our marriage is to believe the best about your spouse, that they're a good willed person. I believe that with my whole heart, that my wife is a good-willed woman, that she wants the best for me. And there might be a moment in time where something happens, and you might think, man, that can be taken one of two ways. Benefit of the doubt, friend. Benefit of the doubt. Grace gives. If you don't know who this author is, his name is Bob Goff. I've not read a lot, but I've listened to a lot. And one of the things that he says is this, grace doesn't seem fair until you need it. That's gold, friend. When you have to give it, it doesn't seem fair, but when you need it, you want it. You want it, and you think everybody should give it to you. See, these roles in marriage are separate, but they are equal. And there's a commonality in the roles. Think about it submission and giving submission and giving. Commonality is sacrifice. Both require sacrifice. Both are based in grace. To submit is an act of of humility and grace. To love and to give is an act of humility and grace. There's a commonality. Don't get so locked into the roles that you think they're so different. We have to operate so differently. Yes, there are different roles, but they're based in grace, both of them. Brendan Manning, ragamuffin that he is, says this, All is grace. It is enough, and it is beautiful. Marriage isn't easy. We know that. We know that marriage isn't easy. If you've been married for any amount of time, you know it's not easy, but it's beautiful. It's purposeful, it's intentional, it's redemptive, and it's sanctifying. God created, he designed it ultimately to point to Jesus. So our question is simply this, does your marriage illustrate Christ and the church? If you look at these five ways, does your marriage illustrate Christ and the church? And if not, why not? If we're just being straight honest with each other this morning, and hopefully we are, you might say, how could I actually ever do that? I know myself well enough. I'm, I'm pretty much a failure at a lot of things in my life, including being a husband. Right? How could I actually do that? Right? It might work for a little bit, but man, ultimately, grace kind of wears, wears out for me. Right? Some of us might look like that. Or or my spouse over-warrants over, over, over warrants grace, right? Some of us might think think that too. Well, the truth is, is that you're right. You can't do it. And that's actually a really good place to start, that you can't do it. That, that you can't illustrate Christ in the church on your own. And neither can you and your wife on your own. The answer to the question is, is that left to ourselves, we're selfish. Left to ourself, we, we wouldn't do it. So what do we need? We need Jesus. Truly, we need his work on our behalf. We need somebody to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, in order to provide us with a way to do what we're called to do. And that's exactly what Jesus did. So Jesus did for you what you couldn't do. He lived the perfect life, the holy life. He he showed us the grace. He showed us what it means to submit and to love. And now, through him, we can. Ephesians 12, fix our eyes on Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson tells us this, that it's the key to the whole thing. He means all of life. This morning, we mean marriage. The key to the whole marriage is fix our eyes on Jesus. You see, without the work of Jesus you and I don't have a chance, we wouldn't understand. We wouldn't understand. If you didn't understand the gospel, you wouldn't understand the roles. So those people who don't know Jesus, they wouldn't understand these roles. They have no, they have no paradigm for it. That's not being rude. That's being that they don't understand it yet. And you wouldn't understand it either without Jesus. And you wouldn't care. <laughs> I wouldn't care. You wouldn't care. If you didn't know the work of Jesus, you wouldn't care if your marriage was honoring God or not. And only because of the work of Jesus can we know what God has called us to, care about it, and be empowered to do it. If you don't know the work of Jesus this morning, then there's not a chance your marriage is going to illustrate Christ in the church, which means your marriage is never going to be what God wants it to be. That's the bad news. The good news is, It doesn't have to stay that way. That Jesus, in great love for you, came and died for your sins, providing you with a way for you to be empowered to live the life that God has called you into. He makes it available through repentance and faith in himself. Christians, the world learns what the gospel is like through our lives and through our marriages. Do you know that there are some who scoff Christianity, scoff even the existence of God because of failures in the church and in Christians, who who say one thing about claiming the name of Jesus but live nothing like that? Actually live the opposite of what even the world thinks Christ was about. In some ways, our best apologetic for the unbelieving world is our lives surrendered to radical obedience to Jesus. In marriage, that looks like this. Fulfilling your biblical defined roles. Seeking, pursuing holiness. Remaining covenantly faithful to your spouse. Centering your marriage on Jesus. And being fueled by, based in, grace. May God help us. Father. Our desire is that our marriages may honor you. That's a desire of our heart. By grace, God, um, we pray that you would help us to do just that. We need you. I need you. No one's perfect here. Everybody's marriage needs work. God, this is a place where we can admit that. We commit that that we're we're sinners, we're failures, we've struggled, we haven't always honored you. Our marriages aren't always centered on Jesus. So, Father, even this morning, congregationally, we we want to confess to you. As we sit here, I, I might even and I would ask that if there's some who need to confess of, of, of sin in their marriage, that they would do that even now. God, the union of a, of a man and a woman is divinely designed We don't want to take that for granted. We don't want to miss it. Miss what it was meant to be. Miss being part of it. You've called us into it. Father, may you be glorified in our church, in our marriages. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Let's stand together.